God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, be reading verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our hearts would be so fearful and reverent and thankful and joyful in you, that we'd have such a settled faith in your promises, that our obedience unto you would mean a kind of love permeating our fellowship that would then become obvious and overflow onto those outside of it so that our conduct among the Gentiles would be honorable. That your praise and glory would be made known for having called us out of darkness into light. In Christ's name, I ask this. Amen. The modern church is far too worried about being hip and too little concerned with being holy. We're more concerned that our conduct be cool than that it be honorable. We behave like exiles, but like exiles trying not to be noticed as tourists. We want to fit in. Our behavior is more concerned with the faces of men than with the face of God. Instead of sojourners like Abraham looking to that city whose builder and maker was God, we've built our houses on the sand. But it's a really cool beach house, right? Everybody, look at it. Peter began a section in 2.11 that is coming to conclusion here. He has been calling for holy and honorable living among the Gentiles. So the general heading, 11 and 12, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the fashions of, passions of the flesh. So there's the holiness aspect. And then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. First pursue holiness, and then from that personal holiness flows public honorable living. And Peter Peter (laughs) follows that with three specific 
instances that he focuses on concerning honorable conduct among the Gentiles. So first, citizens under government, 2, 3 through 13 through 17. Second, slaves under unbelieving lords, 2, 18 through 25. And then third, wives under unbelieving husbands, 3, 1 through 7. And so whenever Peter says, finally, it's not the conclusion of the letter, it's the conclusion of this section concerning holy lives, honorable living among the Gentiles. And in this this summary of this section, he first addresses believers and our behavior towards one another in verse 8, and then in verse 9, our behavior towards spiritual Gentiles, unbelievers, and then in 10 through 12, he gives the grounds that lie underneath this behavior. So first, honorable conduct towards the brothers. How we relate to one another is our honorable conduct among the Gentiles. How you relate to one another is how you are living before this world. The church shouldn't be a monastery tucked away in some mountain that's never seen by anyone. It's meant to be a city on a hill. So the corporate life of the church is something that should be seen. It's something that should be displayed. Whenever unbelievers are looking at an individual Christian, they should get the sense that they're looking at someone who belongs to a family. That should be obvious. It should be known. Our relationships in the church should be so substantial that whenever the world considers us, they can't consider us alone. They have to think of the church. Paul has written this letter to elect exiles as their pilgrims in this life. But he's taken time to address Specifically, segments, citizens, slaves, wives. But now he says, all of you. This is a summary. He's come, he gave the general big heading, and now he's coming back to treat everyone under that again. All of you. He's speaking to all of them concerning all of them. This is how they're to relate to one another. And he lists five qualities that form a chiasm. A chiasm is an organizational structure that doesn't jive as well with our linear Western minds. It has an ABCBA pattern or ABCDCBA. It returns back the way it came. So picture a, a diamond-shaped piece of paper and fold it over to make a triangle and then unfold it. And, and that's what's happening in a chiasm is you're returning back to the same point that you began with. You're retracing your steps. And just as in this diamond-shaped piece of paper, so in a chiasm, that center part that's the largest is where the emphasis is. It's what's being highlighted. So in our Western minds, we might say, put the most important thing first or last. In a chiasm, the most important thing, the highlighted thing, comes in the middle. And so in the middle of these five qualities, you have brotherly love. All the other qualities here are instances, there are a fleshing out, they're a working out, they're a demonstration of brotherly love. The whole of our obedience to God can be summed up with the word love. Jesus was asked, what's the great commandment? And he said, love God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, it's the summary command. But here, Peter, and, and that, that goes across the board, but Peter here is focusing on brotherly love, a love within the body, within the fellowship. In 122, Peter tells us that 
the obedience of faith to the truth of the gospel purified our hearts for a sincere brotherly love, and therefore thus we are to love one another earnestly from that pure heart. Later, Peter will say in 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. There's a distinction. Honor everyone. You have this general kind of category of love and honor that goes out to everyone, but the brothers love. And you see Peter doing this two times in this letter. He references them as beloved. It could be that he's saying they're beloved of God. That's true. And that's the reason why I think Peter is calling them beloved. But it's the underlying reason. I think Peter personally is speaking of them as his beloved. He loves them. Why? They're the brotherhood. Because of what God's redemption has done, it's created this family. This inheritance that Peter is speaking of again and again in so rich and varied terms throughout this letter, this inheritance is an inheritance that we have as sons adopted in the Son, sons of the Father. Part of this inheritance as sons is this family that we enjoy in Christ. Many only know the church as one of several social institutions they're involved in. While their richest friendships and relationships exist independently, they're, they're things that they form with this institution. I've got this friendship here that I draw from, and, and over here I have one. And there's nothing wrong with having friendships from a wide swath. But the richest relationships you should enjoy should be within the body of Christ. Blood is thicker than water. They say, true, but Jesus' blood is thicker than ours. Here's the measure of brotherly love that Jesus lays down. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So now do you see the, are the dots starting to connect? Live honorably among the Gentiles. And now he's telling us to love one another. Why? How do those connect? Because by that, people know that you are Christ's disciples. Indeed, the love that we have for the saints is Christ's very love communicated to us by the Spirit. By this love we testify that we are Christ's disciples. So this is the central hub, brotherly love, and you have four spokes that come off of this. The first one, unity of mind. Unity alone, independent, all by itself. Unity is not in itself honorable. Something is assumed here, and it's essential that you realize what is assumed. D.A. Carson writes, The Bible itself recognizes that unity is not an intrinsic good. There is good unity and there is bad unity. Bad unity occurs in Genesis 11, when rebellious humankind unites to build a tower to heaven to defy God. I fear that many evangelical churches have a babel erected inside of them. Whenever you promote unity for the sake of unity, you've made an idol out of unity. In 1994 and again in 1997, leading evangelicals and Catholics came together to put together a couple of documents referred to as evangelicals and Catholics together. They were very creative in their title. 
And they essentially said that we agree on matters of salvation. And if you read those documents, what they show is not that Catholics changed their mind on anything, but that evangelicals were just wishy-washy, lax on defining what imputation was, what justification by faith alone means. Today, this laxity is so rampant that T.D. Jakes put aside his health and wealth heresy, denies the Trinity, such that he would have been condemned historically by all three wings of Christendom, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, all alike that hold to the ecumenical creeds would say that's heresy and now he's widely regarded as evangelical. This unity here is a unity of mind. I'm not calling for a kind of doctrinal perfection as the basis for unity. But there has to be a standard lest we find ourselves to be worshiping a golden calf and calling it Yahweh. In the 17th century, one German theologian said, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Whenever someone denies the essentials, the charitable thing to do the loving thing to do is tell them that they're not worshiping Yahweh. There's something essential that's been denied, and the loving thing to do is tell them, you've denied the faith. You're not worshiping the same God. There can be charity in that instance, but there cannot be unity. And if there is unity, it's not a unity of brotherly love. Because the basis of brotherly love, the the basis of Christ that forms that family has been denied. So whatever charity there is in that instance, it is not brotherly love. Thus, there's not this unity that comes with it. Christian unity is first rooted in a reality, a reality that's true of us in Christ. Ephesians 4 calls for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Notice, we're not to create it. We don't manufacture it. That's not our lot. Our part is to maintain it. And he goes on to explain what underlies that unity that is among God's people. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That reality, that that Christian unity, that reality is based in truth. And the more that that truth is denied to lesser or greater degrees, that is the extent to which our unity is determined. The more they are affirmed, the greater our unity. The more they are attacked, the less so. Paul expressed his desire to hear that The Philippian church is standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm against what? This is a militant position. What unites is this fight. What's being fought for? He explains, with one man striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's true Christian unity. A unity in truth and a unity for the cause of truth. 
The problem with so many calls to unity today is that there's no striving for the gospel. There's rather a compromising of the gospel. Much unity today isn't unity of mind, it's unity of mindlessness. And if the mind was used, they would see that it's not so much a unity in God's blessed truth, but a unity rooted in blasphemous lies that is being pushed. Unity is a byproduct of truth. Unity is the daughter of truth. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains what is wrong with the preoccupation with unity and why it's doomed to fail. To me, one of the major tragedies of the hour, and especially in the realm of the church, is that most of the time seems to be taken up by the leaders in preaching about unity instead of preaching the gospel that alone can produce unity. There are many who differ with us on, on many points of theology, but if they hold to this gospel, there's unity. But you know, the sad reality that's so often the case is that we'll say that we both believe the gospel but they don't really want to hold that forth. They don't really want to unify around that. There must be a unity of mind or there's no unity. And flowing from this, uh, following this unity of mind, you have sympathy. So you go from a shared mind to a shared heart. Now with the Greek word that's here is with our English word sympathy, that it most often is used to convey a, a sharing of pain and sorrow and hurt. And that's absolutely true. But note that the Bible's never content to leave Christian sympathy, to leave the Christian shared heart just at that. Whenever Paul was speaking about the church as a body and, and each of us being various members of that body, and, and it's one a hand, one a foot, the other an eye, and, and that we're to have the equal care for each member of the body, not treating one as a lesser unnecessary, you know, if, if we're going to amputate something, let's, let's, that, that one's first on the list. Not to have that kind of mentality among ourselves and, and to capture this kind of unity and care for one another, he puts it this way, this is Christian sympathy, not just our hurts and pains, but also our joys and delights. If one member suffers, he writes, all suffer together if one member is honored, all Rejoice together. In Romans, he writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I think we're often far too casual in this. Someone shares our pain, their pains and, and we nod our head, but do we really enter into it? I think we can grow in this, but there are instances that I rejoice in whenever I see it here. For instance, whenever Daniel and Dakota told us they were expecting... Some of you were so happy you would have thought you were expecting. That's what it's calling for, this shared heart and mind among the body. When one hurts, you hurt. When another rejoices, you rejoice. Now, before returning to the mind, you have another statement concerning the heart. Remember this ABCBA pattern. So you get another statement concerning the heart. We're to have a tender heart one another. That's a kind and compassionate heart. What does it mean by tender heart? I think foremost the idea is that we would be forgiving and merciful rather than bitter or resentful. I say that because in Ephesians 4.32, Paul commands us, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God forgave you. 
along with this, Peter will soon exhort us, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This kind of tender, affectionate heart that's really demonstrated whenever someone sins against you and you forgive them in Christ. You seek that reconciliation because of God's rich grace to you. And finally, we return to the mind. Peter tells us to be humble-minded. Humility of the mind involves thinking, thinking others more significant than ourselves. Listen to how Paul ties so many of these things together that we've been looking at in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, think them, reckon them more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this is what brotherly love looks like. Now we transition from the church to, I think, the clear implication being the Gentiles in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So I think you transition from the church to the Gentiles, but did you notice also there's this transition from the heart and the mind to outward behavior? And you see now how this summary goes back to the introduction. Pursue personal holiness. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, heart, mind. And live honorably among the Gentiles. Outward behavior. There's a correlation here between the beginning and the end. And I've, I already spoke of how I believe that Peter intends for you to see that public honorable living flows from private holy living. But now I think we can add an element. And it's not that Peter is explicit again. I just think that it can be asserted because it's understood it lies underneath this. But life in the church, brotherly love in the church, prepares you to live doing good deeds in the public sphere among the Gentiles. This is a kind of private life. This is home. And it prepares you to go outside and do good deeds. Now, concerning the Gentiles, this command has both a negative and positive side. First, not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Sin never excuses sin. No, uh, he hit me first doesn't fly with a good earthly father. And it certainly won't fly with our perfect heavenly father. Peter's just called for slaves to obey unjust lords, holding forth the example of Christ as the servant of Yahweh, who went to the cross in obedience with, 
to the Father. And likewise here, we're to do these things, not because in reference point to man, but in reference point to God, doing good unto the Lord in the fear of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do you see what he, Paul did there? He makes a distinction to one another and to everyone. But you notice where he didn't make a distinction. In the act that's to be rendered to each, do good. Do good to all of them. There should be a distinct kind of love in the body, but uh, uh, this command, do good to everyone, that applies not only in the body, that applies to all. Instead of repaying evil for evil, we are to bless. That act of blessing, I think, goes back to the identity Peter unfolded for us in chapter 2 and verse 9 as a royal priesthood. Priests bless. Hebrews lays down this principle. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Priests bless. The Aaronic priests were instructed to bless the people, saying, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Numbers 6. In Exodus 19.6, God refers to the entire nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests. That's what Peter's drawing from whenever he says you're a royal priesthood. Now, how was it that Israel as a nation would act as a kingdom of priests to the Gentiles? How would they do that? Well, if you read Exodus 19, it speaks of them obeying God's voice. Obeying His commands. Obedience. Living in a, in, a, in, in a way that is honorable among the Gentiles. Doing good unto God in obedience to God is a way that we bless the nations. It's a way that we're salt and we're light. The Abrahamic covenant repeatedly said, Abraham, through your offspring... All the world will be blessed. And I think one way this happens is not whenever we try to act in some kind of really spiritual way and say some kind of prayer or pronounce a blessing on people when they've done bad to us, but by simply being obedient and by doing good. In Deuteronomy 4, concerning the commands that he had taught Israel, Moses said to them, keep them, do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is wise as a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so as Israel kept covenant with her God, as she was fearful of God, as she did good deeds and obedience to Him, to everyone, she was a blessing. That's what's being called for here, to act as a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, that the world might be blessed through us. Blessing can involve the tongue. 
You see that Peter speaks about the tongue on each side of this. Not repaying, reviling for reviling, keeping your lips from speaking deceit. So blessing involves the tongue, but it involves simply how you behave, how you act. As he speaks of on each side of this command. Do not repay evil for evil. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. We bless this world when we simply obey our God and doing good deeds. Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor imprisoned following World War II by the communist regime. In his book, Tortured for Christ, he writes, I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starved, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which is poured out, which was poured out in our hearts. Later, the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Under communism, communists, even communist rulers are put in prison almost as often as their adversaries. Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread. We were given one slice a week. And the medicine that could save their lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. These are the last words of Eliu Manu, as best as I can pronounce it. A Christian and the former prime minister of Romania who died in prison. If the communists are overthrown in our country, it will be the most holy duty of every Christian to go into the streets and defend the communists from the righteous fury of the multitudes whom they have tyrannized. That's the kind of honorable living among the Gentiles that blesses them. But this can be complex. Love and doing good also mean seeking justice. And so while that would mean protecting the communists from the lynching mob of the masses, it would not mean protecting them from the noose of a just court. Likewise, a loving shepherd not only feeds the sheep, but he shoots the wolves. There are complexities here. And quite often, living examples make clear theoretical complexities. How do we deal with this? And you may have kept up a bit or, or seen some of the video uh, footage of Rachel Denhollander, the first gymnast that publicly accused uh, the former USA gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser of abuse. And before his sentencing, after she pleaded with the judge to serve the maximum sentence, after that she went on to say this to Nasser. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. 
If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as of God himself, loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to even make one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And this is what, is, what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. Blessing means doing good. The ultimate good we can do anyone is to tell them of the grace and mercy that are in Christ. But to tell them of that grace and mercy, we have to tell them of the ugliness of sin and the wrath justly due sin. Now to substantiate this command, Peter gives three grounds, all indicated by the word for. Verse 9, for. Verse 10, 4. Verse 12, 4. The first reason they should bless is because this is their calling. For, to this you were called. This is the same calling that was specifically applied to slaves in 2.20-21. through 21. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Peter earlier spoke of Christ, his sufferings, and his subsequent glories. And that's the pattern he's laying out for us in this book. Suffering first, and then glory. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so here, this is our calling, following Christ, suffering now, glory later, but this suffering is, is tied into an inheritance, a reward, a credit. What credit is it if when you suffer and are beaten for it, you, are, you endure, if it's, if it's not for good but evil? And so here you're called to do this, that you may obtain a blessing. Going back to that inheritance, that hope. In his discourse on discipleship in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the first grounds that Peter lies underneath this command is one of both purpose and motivation. Purpose, it's your calling. Motivation, reward, inheritance. The second command, the second grounds, excuse me, is the grounds of authority. Okay, upon what grounds do you set forth this promise, Peter? The grounds is scripture. He goes on to quote the 34th Psalm. Psalm 34, 12 through 17 are set forth in verses 10 through 12. And a condition for this blessedness is put there. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's blessedness. And then three conditions, all indicated by let. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. But before we we think any about those conditions, what does it mean to be blessed? Love life and seek good days. What is blessedness? Well, the context for that psalm was Israel in covenant relationship with God where they were in His place and He was in their presence and they were under His rule. That was blessedness. It was an echo of Eden, God's people in God's place under God's rule. It was an anticipation of the salvation to come. God promised this land flowing with milk and honey where He would dwell in their midst. Blessedness involved the totality of their lives. It wasn't a specific aspect, but at the center of it, with everything flowing from it, was God and His love and His presence with them. And what you see here in Peter is that blessedness comes into its full at Christ appearing on the day of our salvation, whenever all this inheritance is lavished upon us eternally. Now that isn't to say that we don't enjoy any of these things now. We just have to understand that that whenever we, we enjoy any aspect of blessedness now, it comes from the future. It, it's, it's a tasting in the presence of, uh, of all this future that's bought for us. You see, no matter how intense man's rebellion is, he can't make a square peg fit into a round hole. Whenever redemption comes, it's going to set things right. But, but know this, the world as it is, is God's creation still. It wasn't made to operate in reverse. It wasn't, it wasn't made to go in this gear that man is trying to force it into, this, this gear of utter rebellion against its creator. Darkness is dark. Light is light. Righteousness brings joy. Unrighteousness brings death. Man cannot squeeze life out of sin, no matter how hard he tries. So though we may suffer in this life, realize this. Righteousness is the best way to live, not only concerning the future. Righteousness is the best way to live right now. When a man works, he eats. If you cultivate the field of your marriage. You'll enjoy the fruits thereof. When a man obeys God, lives according to His law, he tastes something 
of the age to come whenever everything will be set right. So imagine you have a glass of water that's filled with this water from a special well. It has a rich mineral taste, but you hear that once people try it, they don't want anything else. It has great health benefits. It brings clarity of mind and thought and perception. The only thing is that, like so many good things, it's outlawed by a totalitarian state. They insist that you drink their sweet port wine that is as toxic as it is intoxicating. It numbs the mind and the will. And so you can drink this water and be fully alert, but that will only mean walking to the gallows to fully sense every bit of it. Or you can drink the sweet port wine and extend your life by a number of days. Who's really living? Life cannot be measured simply by length of days or hours. The best way to live is in obedience to God. And that doesn't mean your best life now. It might mean suffering but it will mean really living. Now you come to these conditions. The first one regards the tongue, verse 10. It goes back to not reviling those who revile us. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceit. The second one involves doing good. Turn away from evil and do good. That goes back to not repaying evil for evil. And the third relates to both of these, pursuing peace. Now, these are not conditions to, for an orphan to merit sonship. These are conditions for a son to enjoy the reward of further grace and favor with God. These are not conditions so that you can have God's love. These are conditions inside of God's love, to grow deeper in love. Peter's quotation here is from the Septuagint, or the LXX, as you'll see it in some Christian literature. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it follows the Septuagint pretty strictly, except that Peter inserts a four at this point. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Why is it, here's the next grounds that Peter is giving. Why is it, why is it so? Scripture says it's so, but why is it so? And the answer is, because of who God is. It's the answer why everything that is, is. This is who God is. Because His face looks one way upon the righteous. And it looks another way up on the wicked. That's why, why this place is so blessed and this one's so cursed. is because of who God is. Remember the, the blessing that the priest pronounced? <coughs> Yahweh, bless you and keep you. What does it mean for Him to bless you? Yahweh, make His face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what blessedness is. 
the Father beaming down upon you in delight. And that's yours in Christ. But if you want to enjoy that more fully, more richly, obey Him in Christ. And your inheritance of the Father's face and joy and pleasure redounds all the more. Quite often, hell is painted as scary because the God of all joy and beauty and glory and truth is absent. That's not right. Here is the terror of hell. It's that God is fully present. It's not that His face turns away completely. It turns away in the sense of any of, of whenever God turns His face, as it were, for, from the sun, it's the sense that He's forsaken. He's abandoned. But the Father's face gazed upon His Son in a different sense as He beheld our sins and His wrath was poured out on Him. It's whenever the face of Yahweh is set against those who do evil. That's the most terrifying aspect of hell. That's what cursedness means. Blessedness means His face shining down on love and joy. And cursedness means that His face shines, not shines, but frowns, scowls in hatred. Perfect, righteous, just, holy hatred. This is the peak of all blessedness. The snow-capped, majestic peak of God and all the tributaries of joy and blessing that flow from that. The reason why we'll enjoy any good thing in the kingdom to come is because it flows from that stream. As you bite that apple, not an apple of rebellion, but one of obedience, giving thanks and glory to God, as you bite that, the sweetest thing you will relish is not simply the taste in your mouth, but how it corresponds to this thought in your soul. My father loves me this much. This is his face shining down on me. How sweet. And so partake of that. Drink that in now. That's the peak of all blessedness from which every stream of blessing flows. And that's why our blessedness cannot be contained, you see, to the age to come. Because we taste of that now in Christ. We are exiles that have been born again to a living inheritance. And at the center of that inheritance is God. And we enjoy Him. We fellowship. We draw near now. And we grow deeper in this inheritance by Spirit-empowered, Christ-purchased obedience. His eternal love is set upon us in Christ. But inside that love, He has laid forth this path in love for us to walk, to come into a richer and fuller inheritance. And He tells us that He sees and He hears. Those are solid grounds to stand on. To obey this command. To love one another with a brotherly love. And live honorably among the Gentiles. Do you see why it's so foolish to worry about fitting in with this world? Whenever we are elect exiles. 
Why it's, so, why it's so foolish to try to fit in with this world that is perishing when we're exiles sojourning towards an eternal inheritance. Let our concern not be to look cool in the eyes of the Gentiles, but to live honorably among them, knowing that the face of our Father looks down on us with joy and pleasure in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, how astounding that because of Christ's work, we're regarded as the righteous. And that we can know in Christ as the righteous, your face of benevolent love and blessedness beams upon us. May that strengthen us to love one another and to do good deeds, even to those who persecute us, all in fear and reverence towards you and in the hope of the day of our salvation. Amen.